had the opportunity to sit down with Sam Vallon of Caligula's Horse recently and have a nice long chat about a bunch of different subjects. It was a ton of fun, so much fun in fact that I forgot to introduce him in the beginning of the video. So here is my hour-long conversation with Sam from Caligula's Horse. When I was growing up, there wasn't really any sort of resources for learning how to do it. Yeah, not at all. And, and the few things that you would find would give you a little kind of, you know, glimpses here and there, but it was very hard to, um, you know, really get your head around any kind of method or any real uh, foundational information, I think, you know, I, I definitely struggled a lot. Yeah. And I have, I mean, I have tab books, like I have dream theater tab books that are quote unquote official, but they're like completely wrong. Yeah. And so, oh man, it's like, what are you supposed to do? <laughs> Yeah, that used to actually blow my mind because I guess like probably a pretty similar age, like that was really how I kind of learned stuff like in my youth. And yeah, like half of it was just you'd play it and you'd be like, really? I don't think so. Although I suppose that kind of drives you to, you know, use your ear a little bit more, which is probably pretty Which is more important. Right. I probably should have done that more when I was younger, use my ear. Yeah, um, I wish I did too. I think, yeah, I think tab books now are much better. Like they're mm. edited more you know, more deeply by the actual artist, at least it seems like. There's more care put in, if nothing yeah. else. It definitely feels that way. Have, yeah. have you guys made tab books, like official tab books? Yeah, well, so I I have. I, we, we released a, a, a tab book for In Contact. Okay. I don't know how much I can kind of say now, but we've got a lot more on the way. Oh, okay. All right. Well. <laughs> like very, very soon to be announced. Actually, just for, for my own context, when when were you planning on having this released? Just to work out how much I can reveal about different things. I mean, probably within the next week or two. So if oh, you have something like in the future, just <laughs> we'll just not say anything about it. <laughs> yes, well, no worries. Yeah, I got to keep the content rolling. That's part of doing of course, a YouTube of course, channel. Yeah. That's like the worst thing about it is like always having to come up with ideas all the time. Oh, yeah, it drove me crazy. <laughs> I hear you. But yeah. I did you did you watch the lesson that I did for? No, I had said, a little oh. had a little kind of skim through. I, I haven't found the time fine. to sit down and do the whole thing, but I noticed like discussing the the motifs and all that kind of stuff, which I think is is great because it's such a big part of how I think about music as well. Um, but no, it, lo it looked good from the brief kind of look in that I, I had the chance to. I'm have. just always curious, you know, if I do something, and then if the actual artist is like, well, that doesn't, you know, that's not right, <laughs> that sort of thing. <laughs> Um, no, it's, it seemed it seemed to cover a lot of that, but again, I I, I don't have a I don't have a yeah, full yeah, yeah. full knowledge of it yet. You can throw some of the throw some of the observations at me, and I can <laughs> I'll tell you or not. Yeah, <laughs> cool. So you guys just got back from a tour recently. Mm. Right? That's right. We we just got back from like a, a fairly extensive one. Um, you know, obviously the pandemic was a period where we really weren't able to to do that for a long time, in spite of our, our best efforts. But we did um, we did three weeks in Europe, and then had like kind of about a week off where we were home. Then went to um, Latin America, and then we ended with a festival in the U.S. before heading home again. Okay. So it was it was an awesome kind of return to those things because you know we really covered most territories that we usually do got a good sense for you know how it all is now in this new world that we live in after covid were those your first shows coming back 
Uh, we did a bunch of Australian okay. stuff. Um, so, you know, both like during the pandemic, like some live stream type stuff. And then also also as it started to simmer down in Australia, which I think was a little earlier than a lot of the rest of the world. Because we, I don't know how much you followed, but like we, we locked down very, very hard in Australia. It kind of made the whole experience a little, a little shorter, I hope. I mean, otherwise we just did it for nothing. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so we, we did, we did uh, a couple of tours in Australia, both support and headline. This was the first time we headed overseas again, okay. though. Cool. Well, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. The The U.S. is weird in that, like, depending on where you were, it was either, like, crazy or nothing, basically. <laughs> so, mm. like, yeah, you're crazy or don't even, don't even Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, and I kind of, I traveled around a little bit the first, you know, couple of years. And I would, like, I went to Montana mm. in, two, oh, in yeah. 2020. And basically, it just, COVID didn't exist, you know. <laughs> so yeah, it totally, was so weird. It, it, it definitely it felt like just that. kind of depends on where you are. It's just. It's a very strange place over here, but <laughs> mm, mm. but yeah, I, like either way, I guess the difference was that we didn't really have the opportunity to do any kind of reasonable touring. Like we, we and and I think every other artist in our kind of level um, had this constant push to be like back on tour as soon as we could because you know I, I, again I don't know how much you followed but we basically managed to release like our biggest album right into the start of the pandemic so we didn't get to kind of do all of the touring and stuff on the back of it and that was um you know bad <laughs> I guess to say the least but but at the same time I mean you know there, there was something kind of cool about releasing an album that was so much um thematically based around like hopefulness you know in this generally quite dark time so anyway we we in the in that recent tour that was ostensibly the rise radiant tour like we'd kind of held off that long to do it and now finally you know managed to put this album that has just been sitting in stasis for so long finally put its touring cycle somewhat to bed like we've done it it's actually happened yeah. that's, that's got to be weird to have an album you know three years later and you're finally playing this stuff it's absolutely bizarre like i i've said this a couple of times to people there's this there's this feeling um with the kind of cycles we do of like albums and touring, I say we do, like we did, let me say, um, where, you know, you really don't get to know a song until you play it on the road and play it every night and see how different crowds respond to it and, you know, get both the feel for it orally as well as physically, you know, like playing it, where, where, where can you do all these different kind of moves, where, are you, where can you walk around, where, you know, just all those little kind of the minutia of the show. Um, and we never had that with Rise Radiant. So we had this album that came out and it did really well, like commercially and all of that kind of stuff. But yet the songs were still something of a mystery to us in a really weird way. Like, you know, I, I, I knew the notes, but I didn't really know what it meant. So fortunately, I've now contextualized all of that. And, you know, I, I feel much more familiar with this album I've had for three years now. <laughs> I will say that Rise Radiant was one of the main albums that I kind of listened to during the summer of 2020 and maybe it was awesome. like that hopeful element of it for me something about it just connected perfectly at that time um like i love all your older albums too but for some i don't know it just it worked perfectly for me and well, it was great th so. thank you for thank you for saying that like th there was there was a massive sense releasing it into that that it was like you know that this is this is obviously not the most optimal way we can kind of do this but you know like there really was an element of of we've written the album around around this theme which happens to be very timely with no idea of just how timely it would become you know like our, our kind of responses like thematically like where a lot of that kind of push to hopefulness came from was with was other now in retrospect much smaller scale disasters that had happened you know we had some terrible bushfires yeah, in, yeah. in australia kind of quite close to home we had a lot of kind of political unrest and again like 
you know, all of that stuff, as horrible as it was, obviously paled in comparison to, you know, three years of basically being stuck at home and thousands dead all around the world. Like, but um, yeah, like it, we, we didn't know just how relevant it would be. So the fact that it actually did resonate with you in that time means a lot to hear. It's interesting that, I mean, that's kind of the power of music is that you can write something with one idea in mind and then to someone else it can be something totally different, you know, or hundred percent. We, we, we lean into that. It's actually something that like in a funny sense, you know, given that we're talking about, I I guess, prog, like as the kind of foundation here, like prog can be a very literal music, like in terms of the, 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 the approach to lyric writing and stuff like that, you know, especially with concept albums where you've got an actual narrative told and maybe metaphor takes a bit of a backseat. We tend to be kind of the opposite, you know, like I, we, we want stuff to be, to, to be able to be interpreted in a number of ways and not feel like it's a very direct and very literal statement. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I guess uh, that, that kind of speaks to me even further. So along those lines, if when you're writing, is is the music coming first and then the lyrics and vocals are kind of like coming on top of that or are they kind of working at the same time? Yeah, we like we've got an approach that I actually think increasingly seems kind of idiosyncratic. Like ba- basically most of the writing in the band is done by me and Jim, our singer. Um, other band members collaborate at times, but usually what happens is that I'll sort of start workshopping a couple of ideas. And as soon as they feel good, I mean, little blocks of music, little, you know, chord sequences or, or, or riffs or whatever, starting points. Um, from the very beginning, we start kind of talking about arrangement elements, like how would this fit? What would this represent? And from then on, like even if we're only talking about a building block or two, we're, we're working on lyrical themes and ideas. So we kind of know um, first of all, what the music has inspired lyrically, but then, and probably more importantly, it's got this kind of reflexive relationship with like how the music is written from then on. So here's, you know, the direction we're going to go. And this is kind of what it means this is kind of what it feels like and what it says, you know, so we'll start building lyrics and music in tandem after that point. And I think, um, again, like, I guess uh, talking about things that differentiate us a little bit, um, Especially in prog, it tends to be pretty common that you get kind of lyrics written after music. There's a lot of prog bands where you could even probably make the generalization that lyrics are um, subordinate to music, like music, you know, is, is, is the foremost focus. Obviously not always true, but, uh, you know, I think as a generalization, it's probably not unfair. Um, whereas for us, it, it really is like, I, I want it to feel like the two are integrated from the beginning. Like there's this kind of holistic relationship bet- between them. And um, again, like, you know, whether that works or not, it kind of gives us a, a, a unique approach to the way we write, which can be really satisfying artistically, because you're always kind of writing towards something. You've always got an idea of, you know, what it's supposed to mean and what tools you could use to kind of push it more and more towards that ends. Um, so yeah, that's kind of that's kind of how we do it. Very holistic, I guess, is how I'd, I'd sum it up. Yeah, that's a very that is a very different approach, I think, in this style of music. Yeah, uh, I think you're right in that probably most people in this genre are writing the music first because it's mostly guitar players writing this kind of stuff in here. So <laughs> yeah. They're just like writing riffs and stuff and then and then the vocals get tacked on the end. Um, <laughs> and I've done that before, but I, I do like that, the approach of kind of like working on them in tandem together because like vocals are, if you're doing music with a vocalist, it's not instrumental, that really is the primary thing that people are going to listen to. So... Mm. It's not just something you should tack on at the end. It's like it's it's important that it's part of the song the entire time, you know. Well, I guess there's because you know there's there's a lot of different values, I suppose, that that music listeners would would attribute to 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 their pet music. And I mean, if you're talking about prog fans, you do get a lot for whom 
um, the instrumental side is kind of what captivates them in the first place. Yeah. You know, like I, you know, being someone who grew up with Dream Theater and all of those kind of bands, where at first, as like a teenager, you're listening to it and you're just like, man, this is blowing my head off how good these people are at their instruments. You know, I, I, I increasingly kind of valued other elements, but you know, there's a certain amount of, I guess, just the prog fan base. Um, for whom that that is actually one of the big cells, and then things like lyrical themes might be also less important to them. Maybe there's a match between you know the songwriter and kind of the, the receiver of the music. But you know, at the end of the day, like I, we can kind of have our cake and eat it as well. I think so. You know, with us, it's like we obviously put a lot of thought into that integration, like I said. But that doesn't mean that we can't be incredibly exploratory in the way we're kind of digging into you know the instrumental passages, or even in some cases like the relationship between the vocal and the instrumental. Um, but it is interesting to kind of consider, you know, what elements of all of that the, the listener does value doesn't drive what I do, but it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to consider anyway, you know? Yeah. And actually that's basically how I grew up, you know, and as a kid, it was like, I just want to hear someone shred and I was like, this is so incredible. But then if I go oh, back too. to bands that I fell in love with when I was a kid, the songs that I love now are not like the crazy shreddy ones. It's the ones that feel much more like cohesive and connected mm -hmm. and musical. So it's a very interesting thing. Yeah, they've got thing. that staying power as a result. Yeah, yeah. It's like, because, yeah. I don't know, especially nowadays with Instagram and stuff, I'm just inundated with people who can, like, melt your face off, and it's like... People are way too good. People are just way disgustingly too good. good. I just stay away because it makes me feel depressed. But <laughs> but it's it's just one of those things where, you know, in the end of the day, that doesn't, like, really mean that much. If it's just, you know, an arpeggio, mm -hmm. it doesn't really mean anything unless there's, like, context, you know, <laughs> where, totally. where it's at. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, that's very cool. I, yeah, it's the writing process for this kind of music is, is obviously very involved. Um, mm. so I'm wondering live wise, since you're playing again now, what's the hardest part of the set for you to play? Oh man, that's an interesting one. I mean, obviously it changes as, you know, as, as the set list changes, but there's always a couple of, couple of songs that I'm, I'm ready for them to be a bit of a challenge. So like on the recent tour, um, Salt was a really hard one, you know, Salt yeah, has this yeah. kind of, Salt Off Rise Radiant has this kind of rhythmic time base where, you know, each, each beat is subdivided into quintuplets. Yeah. We kind of jokingly call it a quintuplet shuffle. You could also think of it as like a 516 or something the, like that, like a really the, fast rolling group of the fives. The trendy quintuplet swing thing. Yeah, it's it's increasingly trendy. It seems like we all kind of did it at the same time. But you know, it like it's it's one of those things where um it's it's got a lot of technical components to it, but it's a song that well, I like to think never really demands that you observe the technical elements of it. Like it's quite an emotional song, probably one of the more emotional songs on the record. So there's this element of like the the technical side being hard, but more importantly, making it feel like we're not pushing into a technical threshold where it sounds labored or sounds overly difficult. It has to still have a feel of kind of, um, you know, natural performative space to it. So I, I'd say that's definitely one of the hardest ones. I'm just trying to think like what parts I, I dread the most. There's a couple of runs, like the, the big tapping run at the end of the solo in Graves mm. is always one that I've got yeah, to yeah. hold my breath for and make sure I hit all of those million notes in that <laughs> one beat, you know. Um, and Dream the Dead is always an interesting kind of technical challenge as well, like just all of the many, many guitar solos that it has. But yeah, I mean, for me, like the solos and things are, uh, uh, are you know, they're always tricky. You've got to get them right, got to play them well. But something like Salt is probably a better example of what I what I kind of lose sleep over in the approach <laughs> to a tour because it's not just about playing it, it's about playing it comfortably and having it feel good. You know what I mean? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with that as my official answer. I, I can I can see that because 
in in my experience, like the technical stuff is is difficult. You know, it's like muscle memory mm. stuff, and you get nervous yep. and things are you know tricky. But rhythmic, yeah, yeah, all the variables yeah, add yeah. up. It gets harder. The rhythmic trick trickery is sometimes a lot harder, especially as a band, because mm. you all have to like sink in together. So the things that people think are really difficult and aren't always necessarily the things that are the most difficult to play. Yeah, very much so. And also the, there's this other sense, and this, this is going to sound like heresy to some people, but like, you know, guitar solo, let, let's say like over the context of some obscenely long prog song. So you've got like an eight or nine minute song and you've got, you know, in that time, 20 seconds of really hard guitar passages all up, like the hardest stuff. I mean, man, like, and again, this is the heresy, like, if you fuck up one of those notes in the scheme of things, it's not as important as some people might think. Like at the end of the day, like pulling off the whole performance and making it feel really good is just something that is um, so much more kind of objectively important, at least to the listener, you know, their experience of the whole show. And there's no um, such thing as a perfect, no such thing as a perfect <laughs> performance. I've, I've never played a show where yeah. I was like, that was perfect. And no, I've got, I've gotten off and felt pretty good yeah, about yeah. it, but I, I guess the, the argument would be more like um, that, that perfect isn't kind of that important in the scheme of things. Like, you know, there's a, there's a much more important kind of quality of, of the feel and the kind of the, you know, the vitality of the performance, like how, how well it translates and so forth. And there's something yeah. about a rock show too that's really loud that I think you can actually sometimes get away with mistakes just because of the sheer volume of it. You know, like yeah, especially if there's some spectacle involved. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, like I'll attend a concert, and in my mind, listening to it, everything sounds perfect and it's amazing. But then you take an iPhone video and you listen to it later, and you're like, well, the singer's out of tune, and the guitarist missed that run, and so I, yeah. Or you talk to the talk to the guitarist post show, and he's just like in tears yeah, for yeah. one note that he missed yeah, that exactly. no one in the crowd actually heard. But yeah, I mean, over the years, I've kind of you know, as I've as I've become even more kind of technically comfortable with all of those parts, even so, I kind of, you know, see them a little bit more for what they are. That said, though, I mean, when you do, um, you know, like six weeks of touring, like like we did there, there's this weird shift that you get. This is a slight aside, but it's related as well. You know, like first couple of shows, you get kind of that um, that hyper nervousness before a show, like that kind of excited energy that you get. But once you're like a couple of weeks into a tour, that disappears and you need to kind of simulate it to have the energy on stage. So there's this kind of sense that like, while the show gets technically easier to play, it's also harder to play outward and to kind of have like that excitement on stage translate. I, I know that there'd probably be a lot of people listening to this who would have no idea what I'm talking yeah. about here, but like the line between, um, you know, having just enough of that kind of nervous energy for things to feel exciting and you know for for there to be this kind of great interaction between the audience and you so you know four weeks into a tour you're struggling to just like you're tired you know you're exhausted you've played the same set or some variation of it so many times now and you actually have to kind of lift yourself up to some degree that almost becomes harder sometimes than playing the notes because at that point the notes they're easy you've done them so many times now you know in worse worse situations than 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 yeah. what you're about to so um yeah sometimes that becomes a little bit of a challenge as well, well surprisingly you're, you're tired from traveling too you know going across the oh, world yeah. and all that haven't eaten properly yeah. you've just been you know to the airport for 6 yeah, hours yeah. like you know <laughs> do you have to plan out like in the later gigs like plan out where you're going to be animated like okay this is the section where i go rock out and then come back 
It's almost that you know what? It's almost it's almost the the opposite. It's almost like you just kind of find those parts. Okay. Like the first shows, you know, the first couple of shows of the tour are where I'm a little bit more deliberate about like, all right, you know, I can I can kind of go ham here and it'll be fine. Like by the end of it, you've just kind of found all those markers, I guess. You know, you're four weeks in, like you know that if you don't have your foot on the monitor for this one, you are not hitting those <laughs> notes. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> yeah, a bit more organic, I guess, is is how I feel that. But I, I might be alone. I know there's a lot of musos who actually um, much prefer having a really rigidly set approach to how they, they perform their set, you know. I like to kind of be a bit more in the moment where I can. I, I, I don't know. I, I get a lot of like a lot of value from that. The feeling of yeah. that is really important. I suppose it depends on the difficulty of a part. Like I feel like mm. there would always be certain sections where it's like, okay, this is the part where I need to get my leg up. And, you know, it's mm -hmm. a really stretchy run or whatever. Oh, definitely, definitely. But but those, for what it's worth, those, you know, I obviously do know from the beginning, it's it's those more kind of subtly difficult things, like, you know, nailing that perfect pinch harmonic or something yeah, stupid yeah. like that, or getting that chord change really nice, like the kind of thing that feels fine. And then as you do it more, this is the other thing about playing the same set or a similar set, like night after night, you start to get this really great sense of the things that, although you felt good about them, the actual subtleties of the parts have revealed themselves more and more. This actually kind of jumps back to some degree to what I was talking about with Rise Radiant, like not really knowing the songs. Playing them in the studio is one thing, playing them live is another, and you know, knowing those parts are as good as they can be. And we might be talking about 5% here. It's a very small thing, but still, that, that matters a lot when you're playing it every night. You know? Yeah, especially if you're, are you, are you guys on ears or are you using wedges? Yeah, so we do we do like not only ears, but we have like a full kind of passive split setup okay. on stage. So you know we we mix our own ears, yeah, yeah. and they're, they're basically the same every night. Yeah. Well, you really hear all of your little intricacies when you're you know using oh, absolutely. Ears. Yeah, I love it and hate it. It's you know it's good and bad. An it it definitely holds you to a higher standard for sure than if you're just like yeah, amps we, blaring in the background. <laughs> well, that's it. Like, I, I don't think, um, it, like, I, I could, I can picture a couple of moments throughout our career where, you know, we had like kind of revelatory experiences of we're not as good as we thought we were, you know, like first time you tour with a band who was just way better than you and you really didn't know the benchmark was there until you did that, you know, like those kind of moments throughout your career. But, you know, definitely a big one was moving to that kind of setup. So not just IEMs, but IEMs with a really good mix where every single element of ours is, is split, everything is DI that isn't, you know, drums and vocal um, and it's inescapable. I remember the first couple of times we rehearsed with that, it was like, yeah, cool we can now hear that 20% better that we can be because we're now aware of it. Whereas before, very, very hard to make out. So, yeah, I mean, there's that too. Yeah, and well, before, if you weren't on ears, were you not on the click? Or was like... Um, so we, we've actually done it a ton of different ways okay. over the years. I mean, I'm still a big believer in the idea that the majority of the, 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 the experience of the click should be coming from the drummer and us playing to the drummer. We're fortunate in having someone like Josh who is like both very, very kind of just um, – fundamentally groovy like he has a really good sense of feel he can really lay back into the beat um but also you know he's very good at following a click track especially as it gets more complicated um so you know we we started with all of us on the click um early on we kind of moved to just drummer on the click now we're back to all of us on the click but i have mine mixed basically just loud enough that i can hear it in the quiet okay. parts okay. so you know we don't need to have live counts and things but you know I, I deliberately set it up so that the majority of my time feel is coming from my drummer um you know josh assuming you have case. a drummer who can stay on the click that totally makes sense which is easier said than done because you know it's one thing to play to a click it's another thing to really have a good sense of feel live to a click and also have it be you know absolutely second nature 
so the click is just gone it doesn't exist in your ears you can't even hear it because you're burying it you know i'm assuming you have some stuff on tracks with how, yeah, with how yeah, much well, layered like, how layered your music is yeah we got heaps i mean the, the kind of thing where um over the years we've shifted around how we do that so like in the early days we kind of just did what a lot of bands in you know let's say the kind of 2010s did where we did um like a left and right split click and then backing tracks as a consolidated mono track which went to front of house um, but nowadays we've got a again a much more sophisticated setup so i'm running ableton live and i've got like um uh like five different mono tracks lines things like keys backing vocals um like auxiliary guitars stuff like that just so there's a bit more control in front of house you know depending on whether it needs to be a bit drier and more band oriented or you want a bit more control over writing those different elements um because you know like backing tracks are one of those things where there's nothing worse than either extreme like if it you know if, if the if the experience of backing tracks is an experience of backing tracks live it sucks um, and on the other hand, you know, like a band like ours, where, as you say, we are a very produced band. Like I am very deliberate about the way I arrange and produce these songs. So I don't want to lose my cool like synth pads or my interesting vocal arrangements. I want them there, even though we can't technically perform them that way live. Like it's not you know, really possible without having a slipknot sized band, which I'm not doing. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's kind of the compromise, you know? <laughs> yeah. If you have so many background parts and you want them to be heard because they're integral to the song, but you don't want to pay a million people to go trail across the world. It's... Yeah. And I, and I also don't want them to be a feature. I really want them more to be something that, you know, like the, the, the people we work with, like our wonderful techs all over the world, you know, have a good sensitivity to what, what they do. But the point I guess is like, um, you know, we're a band that uses backing tracks, but I, I try and, provide as much control over those backing tracks as possible so it doesn't feel like it's a binary on or off kind of experience okay. yeah. which sometimes it can feel like that and you know we avoid having things like um there's been all this hilarious controversy which i just cannot i can't i, I find it comedic like um what is it like drummers having kick drums on the backing tracks is oh, the latest yeah. controversy yeah. Whatever. <laughs> it's just like I, I just yawn at all of that i like whatever do what makes you happy it's fine um but um you know we, we also don't want it to be something where like the backing track is is too much of a feature um i even deliberately write songs uh, away from that being the case even though in the early days of Caligula Source, i was a little bit quicker to have you know like a keys intro or something like that or multiple guitar parts that really all need to be heard there's some of that throughout the set list especially in the older stuff but um you know a good example is salt like when i play it live i play the key the, the piano intro on guitar okay. you know cool. try and kind of make it as 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 band oriented as it can be while still having the production elements that I paint over. Yeah, know? so you just like double it in that case. So yeah, what you're trying to yeah. say is that you've been miming all your solos. <laughs> Imagine, I don't know how I could get away with it. You know, like maybe, well, I mean, if maybe it's, one if it's day, on track, you could maybe like. <laughs> I just you just gotta like uh, you, you know, just, just flail, just, just do the just kind turn of, your like, back, Herman just Lee turn your back to the audience. Kind of and... <laughs> I love it. Maybe one day, yeah. When I get too lazy to like rehearse before, yeah, tour, yeah, you know? exactly. Just, just don't even turn your guitar on. Just, it's not even plugged in. No, it's not even plugged. In. Wait a minute. He hasn't been plugged in this whole gig. He's just wireless. What are you? Speaking of guitar, what are you running gear wise? Cortex. Cortex. Um, so right now, yeah, the, the the guitars that I generally take into you can see one of them there, which is JP fifteen. Yep. Um, can't see the other one. Let me let me grab it. I don't know how video oriented your podcast is, but well, I mean, most people are watching. Yeah, th this is this is my main guitar. So I've I've actually had this since I first like started working with Music Man as an endorsee. Way back in um 
I guess late 2014, I think I got this. And like, I've done a ton to this. It's very, it's, it's quite custom at this okay. point, but the main thing is um, bare knuckle silo pickups, which are really, really nice. Um, I've got the JP15-7 behind me there, which has uh, bare knuckle nail bombs. Okay. It's much more kind of mid-rangey guitar. But those are like my two, my two main touring guitars. And then, you know, sometimes I'll bring other backups and things. That said, um, next time we tour, I'm probably going to have to bring quite a few more with me because I, I stupidly wrote some stuff in like drop D ah. and all of my guitars are drop A7 yeah, strings yeah. with, you know, floating bridges. So it's not <laughs> as simple as just jumping just... in and out. Anyway, this is what I've done to myself. So, you know, watch this space, I guess. I mean, compared to some people, that's hardly, you know, any different amount it's not of tuning. excessive. Some people have different tunings yeah, for every song, oh. but... Yeah, exactly. I mean, I for what it's worth, and actually it's probably a perfect kind of follow-on to, to that, like I'm extremely utilitarian about gear. Um, uh, let me show you my pedal board. Oh, let's uh, see it's it. right here. So this is what I – this is my whole rig live. Um, neural quad cortex, and then I've got a, you know, GLXD 16 wireless and a tuner, which I use just because I, I don't love – because uh, because we use MIDI switching, like Ableton does my MIDI switching for me, I'm scared of using the Neural's tuner and just okay. having stuff changing in the background that I can't see. So I like to. Have oh, so you have all your patches well. switching then to via Ableton. Absolutely nice. everything. So yeah, I mean, you joke about like you know solos on the backing track. I'm kind of one step away from that, I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, like my, my rig is incredibly utilitarian. Like it really is just the things I need and then nothing more. And, you know, granted, like we are obviously taking like a, a fairly extensive, um, IEM rig with us, much more extensive than my guitar gear, um, including, you know, the Ableton and stuff like that. But, you know, at the end of the day, like I just want some guitars that do well, sound good. Um, they're not too pretty that I'm not scared of them getting yeah. damaged. It took me a long time to take that one because <laughs> it is very pretty and very expensive. Um, <laughs> But yeah, like, you know, utilitarian down to the core. The simpler the rig, the better for me. I, yeah, and I, I think that's a good kind of thought process to have. I think in this genre specifically, there's like such a push for gear. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't know, I've had the same guitars. I haven't bought a new electric guitar for like seven or eight years. And they work for me and I don't really care. It's like, I don't know. That's it. If it, if it works, you know, like the thing is, I, I still get that, um, that, the, you know, that push to kind of experiment and explore. And I, I, I really enjoy those things, but like, I, I remember, excuse me, in the early days of Caligula Source, like, you know, when we would tour uh, with heads and I would hire cabs in each city and like, if we were doing a support tour, I, I have a memory of supporting um, Opeth like back in like 2016 or something all around Australia and having something like 10 minutes set up and packed down time oh, after each gig. Cause often it is that when you're, yeah. when you're, you know, an up and coming band. And like, I, I remember getting to the end of that tour and just saying, you know what, I'm not doing that again. What, you know, where a model is at. I'm sure I had my Axe effects at that point, probably the first gen. Yeah, yeah. And it was enough to just say, look, if we're going to keep touring this hard and we're going to do these kind of gigs, I need a better rig. Like this is just not going to work. And for what it's worth, I mean, at that point, the difference between say, just as I guess one example of how the rig has evolved, like the difference between modelers and, and amps was pretty minimal. But now I would argue that through front of house, it is indistinguishable. No, yeah, indistinguishable. And, you know, anyone who tells me otherwise, show me a blind test where, where you, you can prove me wrong. Um, but I also kind of just enjoy the aesthetic of a modeler like the Quad Cortex. Like I can tweak and I can explore and I can experiment. And, you know, whether the sound is 
whether you're losing 5%, 10%, whatever, I, like I said, I'm skeptical of that anyway. But whether you're losing that kind of percentage, you make up for it in versatility and in what you can actually do with the rig. And besides, when I used to hire a cab every gig, you know, half the cabs you hired would sound like shit and you just have to deal with that for your guitar sound that night. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, that's, I guess that's the other side of it. Like what I'm saying is I've seen the, seen the dark yeah, yeah. side of touring with, you know, big rigs i don't i don't like it i mean there are some times depending on the type of gig that having like a you know a loud cab and stuff is great but the front of house people mm. don't like it like they have a lot more control no, if they don't that's... have to deal with amps blaring you yeah. know yeah it, it does feel nice having having the amp at your back and i mean for what it's worth like for those musicians who haven't kind of toured with like an iem rig it can take some getting used to in its own right because it is very sterile yeah, feeling, definitely. you know, like it does kind of remove you from that experience of being shaken and moved by your, your guitar sound, which is awesome. Like, it's fantastic. It's the one thing that I've sacrificed for this, but it's a sacrifice that I'm increasingly kind of comfortable with because, you know, again, I have this threshold now raised as to how accurate I can be. I, I can't hide behind anything like that. And also I can basically carry my rig in two hands, yeah. which is incredible as well, you know. Yeah, and at, at the end of the day, the the final product that everyone's hearing is the most important thing. You know, if it may be, mm. if you're a little uncomfortable, but it sounds better overall, then that's wor worth trade off. You know, to have. Exactly, I would I would completely agree. Yeah. So, I did a tiny bit of research for this, but you have a doctorate in music. Yeah, that's right. And you, that that's very interesting because <laughs> yeah. I feel like so in this style of music. Like there are quite a few people that are you get like the stereotypical like Berkeley grad sort of thing, um, but mm. then I also have come across quite a few musicians that don't have any formal training. Mm. Um, well, I mean, what what do you think has been like the benefit of that, especially doing this kind of music to have a formal education? Well, yeah, it's like maybe maybe a maybe an unsatisfying answer. It's one that I've I've said to a couple of people over the years who have sort of suggested they want to like you know maybe students I've had who want to kind of follow in my footsteps and do that kind of thing. And I, I would actually go on a limb and say that my my doctorate has done almost nothing for my approach to music making okay. and playing. Right, it's kind of like a separate endeavor, and it's one that I'm. It's one that I get very excited about as well. Like I, I love music academia and that whole world. But I almost see it as like they're two separate kind of hobbies or interests, you know, or vocations, I suppose, in this case. Like I, I um, you know, I, I teach at university. That's like my, my day job. And that involves a lot of, you know, actual music playing and everything as well. But again, it's like it almost feels like a kind of parallel trajectory in a lot of ways to what I actually do with like my music performance life. So look, that, that's kind of the short version. The, the long version though is that like digging into things like music history and composition and music theory, obviously all of those introduce tools that you may not come across in another context. And like being someone who is quite thoughtful about the way I, I, I create music, like I'm really interested in being analytical, even as emotion is the main focus for me, um, which is probably something, you know, if we want to talk about songwriting, I guess we could dig into a little bit. But even so, just having more vocabulary is arguably always a yeah. good thing, right? Some people have that mindset of, you know, the more I learn, the more I'm going to kind of lose myself or something. For, for what it's worth, I, I'm yet to hear that argument made in a way that doesn't just seem completely like uh, illogical, but whatever. Um, I love having a lot to draw from. You know how I said before that the whole way we write is this very kind of deliberate like vision for where something is going to go. If you want to approach it that way and you don't have like a bunch of options available to you that you could draw from, 
it would be pretty unfulfilling composing that way as opposed to just fiddling around and trying to find things that work and hopefully putting those puzzle pieces together. So, you know, that's the sense that kind of music academia and that side has definitely benefited is if nothing else, it's kind of broadened my mind and, you know, broadened the, the, the painter's palette that I've got available. But, you know, how different my music would be if I never dug into that? I, I don't think it would be as different as some might think, I guess. Yeah. I suppose at yeah. the end of the day, you're still you. So, you know, everyone has their own yeah, sort of yeah. voice on and, the instrument. Yeah, exactly right. And, you know, I'm, I'm obviously writing this stuff to kind of satisfy a very particular itch. Like, you know, like a, it, there's, there's, a, there's a kind of end goal here that I don't feel like it's necessarily manipulated by the, by the musical education or whatever I've got. It's an end goal that is very kind of um, uh, emotionally driven. You know, I want to elicit this kind of feeling with my music rather than, you know, I want the counterpoint to be perfect and that's the only way this is, yeah, it, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. No, no, and definitely. I think music theory, like the idea anyway with technique theory, whatever, at least for me is, like you said, to have more options available to yourself if you're writing something. Mm. But also, uh, ideally, you're not thinking about it when you're when you're writing. You're not thinking about the theory. It's kind of like second nature. So to me, mm. it's like, um, you know, this is a D minor major seven chord or whatever. And like, you could break it down. Theoretically, I could do that. Um, but more to me, it's like, this is a specific sound that this chord has. Mm. Where can I use that? Is that the right emotion for this particular part of the song? And so like, you're mm. kind of using theory, but it's more subtle in the way. It's not like you're purposely like, well, I'm going to do very this applied. chord. Yeah. It's funny you say D minor major seven because the whole of um, Autumn and the Ascent off Rise Radiant are kind of built around oh, a D minor major seven chord. It's like a fu like a fundamental motif. I, of the whole I use thing. that chord. Um, I use that chord way too much. At least there was like a, a period of a couple of years I, I, where I, I just it. used minor major seven chords all over the place. But <laughs> I've, I've done like three um, lessons on it. But <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's it's an awesome sound. No, I I, I completely agree. I mean, it's like the more of this kind of stuff you know, the the I would argue the more deeply it can become kind of ingrained into your vocabulary. So, you know, when you first hear about some new concept, a new scale, a new harmonic idea, something like that, it's very hard for that to be something that you could draw from and then actually use in a way that feels integrated into the rest of your, you know, your, your kind of musical vocabulary. There's probably an argument to just say, like, you should know way more than you want to use because the more you have the more the right answer to a certain problem can uh, appear and the more familiar you can become with that idea because, you know, it's going to be mulling around every time you're looking for something. It's going to just kind of be there and ready to go. Yeah, I mean, knowledge, especially if it's theory, it's like, for me, it's, I'm not writing from a theoretical basis, but I can use it to get me out of something if I need to. If it's like, I don't know, I mm. need to like move to this key signature, like at least I theoretically I know that there's multiple ways you can do that and I can try them out and see which one works, you know. Mm. Um, well, for, for me, I find that when, when I do that, it tends to be something that comes in in kind of the arranging mode a lot as well. So, you know, like there's something to be said for the, the, the intangible creating a new idea kind of part of writing, right? Very hard thing to rationalize in any way. I've tried to for many, many years. Like, you know, sometimes lightning just strikes and that's it. Cool, whatever. However that comes about, I don't really mind, but it does. But from then on, like in the actual creation of a song, like it's a fairly different set of skills, right? 
that's where um, I, I think theory is much more useful. You know, as you say, you want to change key, you want to pivot towards something else, you want to create tension. Um, whether you're explicitly or implicitly engaging with the kind of theoretical side of your your musical vocabulary there, it doesn't really matter. You just need to have something there to be able to draw upon. Because, I mean, imagine the, the, the exact opposite, right? Imagine trying to create something with a grand view to where it goes, but you simply don't have any vocabulary to pull from there. You'd just be blindly throwing a dart at a dartboard and just hoping to hit the bullseye, you know? Um, that's where I think theory allows you to kind of cater an idea to woods and ends a little yeah. bit better. And so, I mean, the, you know, there's basic stuff you learn, like if you're writing vocal harmonies or something, like if you have a theory, some theoretical basis, you can do that all by ear and, and it can sound amazing. But like right off the bat, you'll know, mm. like these notes are probably going to work. These ones aren't going to work based on whatever the chords happen. A hundred percent. Yeah, um, totally. But but even with people that don't know theory, because I've, you know, I watch interviews with with great musicians that don't have a ton of like traditional theory knowledge it seems like a lot of times they almost have their own personal kind of music theory that they've sort of mm. created over well, time have you ever seen how alan holdsworth explains yeah chords? yeah it's crazy you're like that makes no sense but he just figured that out and it works for him so <laughs> it works and it sounds utterly unique yeah so there is kind of this i think everyone kind of has at least some sort of system usually if, if they know what they're doing that's, that's probably a really good way of putting it. It's like, because, it, it, you know, it is often sold to us as this like binary, like it's kind of dualism, yeah, yeah. like either you know theory or you don't, but you're right. Like even those who don't have a great intuition that maybe they've developed from jamming for years or just creating music. You're right. There's always systems, whether they're theory or not. In fact, that's probably an, that's probably kind of a, a revelation that those very anti-theory people probably need to be a bit more aware of. Yeah. Know? And then of course, on the quote, we say theory, but we're just, we're just talking about Western music theory. We're not talking about all the other totally. like you know places in the world that have their yeah, own systems system you, know, you, you could have yeah. so it is an interesting no, discussion totally. but what i always tell people is like knowledge is always good you know it's like you should never like mm. not learn something you know if you have the opportunity because you think it's going to damage yeah, yeah. you to learn and or in something. fact no, totally for totally. me anyway like i found that stuff helpful i remember uh i think it was my sophomore theory class we were doing 20th century music and I heard the idea of a tone row and I was like, oh, that's interesting. So the first thing mm -hmm. I did was went home to my guitar and wrote like a tone row, like prog metal riff, you know. So sometimes inspiration can come from like weird things you didn't know about or concepts. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. oh, Definitely, definitely. I, I will say I actually watched both of your the videos you guys made where you broke down the production of, of the two songs from Rise Radiant. That's right. We did uh, I don't, the, the, tempest the Tempest and the Ascent, Ascent I yeah. think. I, I can't actually remember now, but yeah. I, I love that kind of stuff, just like hearing all the background parts that you don't find like <laughs> elsewhere. There's a lot. Yeah, it's a shame we didn't get to do more. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could do I'd watch them. But probably not worth your probably not worth your time to, to <laughs> just, just you. me. Yeah. No, I mean, like uh, we we definitely do because you know you you say you like to watch them. I I love to analyze that stuff after the fact. It's really cool to go back through and remind yourself. You know. I find just the whole process of, I mean, the writing process is really interesting. But then there's so many layers to it, right? Because then there's the whole production, recording, and it's. I, mm. I don't think. At least I didn't understand that when I was first starting, like how much is involved in getting a song from the initial writing stage to like a release. I just thought you mm. like, oh, you write the song and then you record it and then it's out. You know what I mean? Magic happens. Yeah, yeah. Somewhere yeah. it just like happens. Yeah. Well, especially for a band. I mean, you know, we're probably a band that puts a lot more stock into that than than many do. Like, 
you know, me describing that arranging phase of our songwriting, like it's almost all done in a, in a door, yeah. you know, I, I use Pro Tools or Ableton, like depending on kind of what we're doing. Um, and you know what, maybe, maybe that's actually something that might be a little bit idiosyncratic too, maybe less so now, but certainly uh, it was when we were first starting out, that kind of idea of like a band writing in the room, you know, it's kind of like a classic cliche. Um, I always hated that. I had a lot of experiences with that kind of early on where, you know, th the fact is like loud volume and excited people doesn't necessarily give you the objectively most interesting or best kind of musical outputs, right? So, you know, I kind of love the idea that as we're creating this, we're creating like very good demos. Like if you ever heard our demos, they're kind of, you know, 80% of the finished tracks, you know, they're, they're, they're like, I put a lot of kind of effort into getting them together because you get this great sense of like, really what you're hearing, you know, below the excitement, below the enthusiasm, like really, how does it all fit together? Um, but I also just love that side. I mean, you know, production is also a big part of my career. Like it's something that I, I, I value in its own right. So yeah, I'm with you though. Like, you know, when you're a young person, you probably don't realize just how big a part of the end yeah. product that element is. I, it's such a, yeah. And, and I've gotten into mixing a lot the last, you know, four or five years. And like, that's opened my eyes so much as a musician, especially actually as a writer and a composer, because like, mm. I used to not write with the mix in mind because I didn't really know anything about it. So you try to like, I don't mm. know, for example, you try to have two different guitar parts left and right all the time instead of just doubling them, mm. where in most cases, you know, in a mix, it's going to be much much more impactful to have them doubled for the most part. And then you can layer mm -hmm. other parts on. And so I, I definitely recommend that anyone definitely. like get into at least some sort of basic production if they want, mm. if, even just for their writing, because I think it makes a big difference. Well, that's, uh, I was going to say, I'll go a step further and say, like, if you want to forge your career in music, you kind of need yeah, to be able to, to do that. Because otherwise, you know, you're going to probably burn out pretty early on. I mean, especially just with the kind of, you know, before you start, you know, trying to get a record deal or before you start really trying to generate some income so that you can do that kind of stuff yourself. You know, if you can't produce your own music, you're, you're kind of starting on the back foot, I guess. I'm not saying you have to produce it like to a professional level, more just if you can't generate stuff that you can use to begin that discussion. Yeah, that's a bit of a problem nowadays. Whereas when we started, it was a little bit less, you know, of a constant that everyone knows basic production skills. Yeah, I'd say anyone, you know, coming up as a musician now, like you basically have to learn all that stuff. And I wish I yeah. had earlier. Yeah. But then again, the technology wasn't really at that point when I was in school, like it was just starting. It's very true. And yeah. so, you know, I'm kind of in like a weird, I'm 35, so I'm kind of in this weird age. I'm 36. So, uh, you yeah, know, I'm, I don't know. It feels same. like a weird age where like I have social media and like modern production tools, but I also kind of feel uncomfortable with it because I didn't have it till I was like 20, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm the same. Like, I, you know, for what it's worth, I have to be kind of like forced to do anything social media related. Like, I, you know, absolute boomer in that regard. But no, I remember like in, in high school, um, you know, like I, I was introduced to, I think, Pro Tools 7. I got on like that early on, way back in, you know, 2002 or something like that. And it was a constant fixture of mine. Like I was really interested in it from the very beginning. But I mean, you remember what it was like, the kind of prosumer world didn't exist back then. Like the best you get is like an Mbox and Pro Tools LE and just hope for the best. You don't even have delay compensation, you know, like things that we just take as a yeah. given now in the production world. But still, I mean, you couldn't stop me. You know, I was so curious and interested in it that it was fine, even though it frankly sucked in retrospect 
retrospect. Whereas what you've got at, fing- at your fingertips now as an up, up and coming musician, like, you know, imagine downloading Logic onto your Mac and having, you know, like a little Focusrite Scarlet or something, and basically having a rig that is comparable to what people 30 years ago would have paid thousands yeah. of dollars for. Like, it's just, it's just wild. Yeah, it's super, it's super handy. I mean, I kind of take it for granted now that I've done it for a while, but the ability to like, you know, by myself, create a whole piece of music that sounds like, you know, 50 people playing it or something like an orchestra or whatever. Like <laughs> yeah. it's pretty amazing, you know, yeah. at the end of the day. Oh, it's incredible. It's incredible. And, and this thing, I guess the difference between you, like the difference between us and maybe, uh, maybe some younger people is just that I, I don't take it for granted yeah, yeah. at all because I didn't have it good True. when I started out. It was much, much harder, you know? Yeah. I remember first bands I was in, you know, you'd have to like scrounge up money altogether to try to like pay for a, <laughs> a terrible recording at a local studio. Oh, it, would it, it would sound horrible. Um, but it's all yeah. you could do, you know. <laughs> that's just what you had, you know. You had to had to make yeah. do with it. <laughs> so, so if you learn how to do that stuff yeah. yourself, then you have to pay all that money. But <laughs> unless exactly. you want it done really that's well, it. right? Yeah, and that, and that's it. The beauty is though, like it's much more scalable nowadays. Because you know, if you're an indie band and you're, you know, releasing stuff, self aggregating and using st- stuff like Bandcamp to get it out there. I mean, the beauty is that you can kind of generate. Um, a setup to the point where you can actually get some passive income before you have to start paying for the expensive shit. Whereas, again, back in my day, like it was much, much harder to do that. You yeah. Know? <laughs> and did Jens Bogren mixed your last album, right? Raise Radio. Yeah. So Jens is like one of my biggest kind of like production he's heroes. A, like he's, yeah, yeah. you know, especially like, well, I, I still consider kind of Watershed Biopath to be kind of like the really like a like a sonic peak in a lot of ways in metal like both natural and big and powerful and d- nuanced and dynamic you know um the great cold distance by catatonia like heaps of albums in that kind of era um so yeah like I, basically you know the budget got big enough because fortunately we 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 you know had an increasing success between each album where that was on the table and it was one of the coolest experiences ever, you know, like stuff I produced having that mixed by one of my heroes and seeing how he responds to it was just wonderful. It's really, really insightful. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd say he's probably my favorite mixer in the, in the metal realm too. Just something about mm. his mixes are, they sound so good and, but they sound natural too. They're not too artificial. Yeah. He's just got a great sense of kind of like, um, like, like what, what the band sounds like. And I think, you know, again, not to sound too kind of like boomerish, like it's really easy in this kind of the, 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 the you know, the modern metal milieu that we exist in right now, where you know, everything can be so kind of hyper real to the point where you actually lose what each of the performers yeah. sounds like. And to some degree, I'm sympathetic towards that. Like I actually love the idea that a 10 out of 10 dynamic feels like a 10 out of 10 dynamic, which, you know, with a lot of kind of recorded music of the past, doesn't necessarily yeah. feel that way. But someone like Jens, he's amazing at, at, at managing to have both that size to the production as well as the kind of nuance in the performed parts. So you can hear every element of the performance, but it still punches you in the guts when it has to. Yeah, you know? yeah and I'd say like the, the drums on Rise Radiant, for example, they sound they sound modern and powerful, but it also sounds like someone's mm. playing them. You know, it's not like... Oh, yeah, you, you can you can hear Josh's, you know, wonderful sense of feel and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, the, it's almost like a cliche, that thing of spending, you know, tens of thousands of dollars on the signal chain you're running your drums through and then it just Get all gets replaced, replaced yeah. by samples <laughs> in the mix, you know. Like, I mean, look, there's nothing wrong with samples. Like, you know, I obviously use them in my own mixes as well. But there's a certain point where it just seems like absolute diminishing returns and even having a human yeah. perform. 
you know, you could say the same thing about guitars once they're, you know, just so heavily edited to a kind of grid or whatever. Again, I have a, I, I'm sympathetic towards the approach because it can be very aesthetically pleasing, but I just worry about when that becomes the primary approach to your production and you don't really have the kind of light to that shade, so to speak. Um, yeah. I think for certain styles of music, it maybe makes sense if you're like a tech death band or something. Like, maybe it makes sense. To, <laughs> yeah, to no, you're, you're exactly right. There's definitely a style where it's it, it's the right approach, but not the kind of music. You know, prog is a very yeah, dynamic yeah. kind of music. Definitely not the kind of music you're yeah. doing. It, it 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 needs to be more dynamic. Totally. I'm, how how much are you? I'm a, how much are you editing your guitars? Like, are you are you tempting to try to play everything as much straight through as possible, like long sections or? Do you break it up? More? Um, I yeah, I deliberately I, I deliberately try to have longer sections. Um, the the reason is again, it's like I think there's this intangible element of feel to a performance that could be lost really really easily um, by just having it done four bars at a time yeah. and gridded. So, you know, like I'll, I'll edit my guitars where I have to, especially if it's something where I want it to feel quite uncanny. You know, you want to have really hard stops or whatever. Um, so it's, it's nothing against the, the performative quality of that. Like I'm not one of those people who hear heavily edited music and think it's intrinsically wrong yeah, yeah. because of the manipulation of performance. I don't give a shit about any of that, <laughs> to be honest. Like whatever sounds good is good as far as I'm concerned. But I, I do have this belief that if I can get longer, more kind of coherent takes – um, there is something to be said for that in terms of the way it makes the audience yeah. feel. You know, there's kind of like a little bit of nuance to it. It's a little bit different each time. Um, you know, that, I, I, you know, maybe it's imperceptible, but I like to think that there's a there's a component to that that you gain something out of. Yeah, I, I've kind of come around because there was a, a while where like I edited things like pretty heavily depending on what it was. And then at some point I was like, I need to find some sort of middle ground because I loved how tight it sounded, but it also started to feel like a little, you know, inhuman and it's like robotic. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes you want that. Like I've just got the a... gent rhythms, for example, like where you got stopped, like you got to like cut out all the space and, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. Like those, those, it feels totally stylistically suitable. And, you know, I have no problem with that at all. Are you guys working on your next album right now? Yeah. So uh, again, I guess it kind of depends when this comes out, how much <laughs> I can, I can reveal. Cause, um, the, the the long story long story short um yeah the, the new album is is actually very very close um again i gotta be don't a little say bit anything else you don't have to say any more trouble that. but um <laughs> yeah we're, like we, we have been working very hard on it i mean we have for, for for a while now i think the diplomatic answer is it's coming much sooner than oh, okay think. well there you go it's <laughs> gonna drop it out of nowhere yeah cool that's exciting <laughs> looking forward to it yeah Great. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming and talking with me. Um, where can people find you? What shows you got coming up? All that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. So we got a tour with Devin Townsend Ooh, coming nice. up across Australia um, in sort of mid-November. Um, we're playing a, a little festival at the end of that as well. Um, beyond that, we haven't announced stuff. Okay. Suffice to say that next year is going to be by far the biggest year of touring nice. that we've ever done. So, you know, those who have, and this, I guess, again, like trying to frame this in a way that doesn't reveal too much early, those who've been waiting for us to come, you're, pr the, you know, I'm speaking to a certain subset of our audience who constantly asks for stuff. We will be there, uh, wherever there, there may be. There is in like where I'm at. <laughs> <laughs> Almost certainly. Okay. If you're listening, uh, assume I'm talking directly to you. Um, okay. uh, yeah, I mean, other than that, you can find me and us on you know all kind of social media platforms. I'm famously garbage on social media platforms, but my band okay, isn't, well, fortunately. <laughs> 
So, so you know, feel free to give us all a, a follow and come hang out. Yeah, well, if you if you guys make it to Seattle or the Pacific Northwest on your next tour, I'll come. Uh, I'll come show you around. <laughs> say hi. I, I shall say. I, I, I shall remain tight lipped <laughs> and give you a Perfect. give you a wink. Well, if it happens, some point theoretically. <laughs> Perfect. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much. Sounds Talk good. Talk to you later. Bye. Right, my pleasure. See ya.